It's Tuesday, January 20th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Good to see you, gents. You just skip right over. Feels Monday, like a we? Monday, but it's not. <laughs> it's not a Monday. We, you know, we got the short week. I mean, it's basically almost Wednesday. And I mean, when you're on Wednesday, <laughs> pretty much the week's like already pretty done much anyway. Wednesday. So this is kind of like Friday, really. I mean, I just figure maybe we'll finish uh, finish up taping and I'm just head on home. Okay. Yeah. As always, I'll people the on the boss. program may have interest <laughs> in stocks here. they talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the business of movies. We're going to dip into the full mailbag, but it is earnings season, so let's start with energy and Halliburton. Fourth quarter profit came in higher than expected. They were a little light on revenue. You tell me, Taylor. You know this company better than I do. Is that why? I mean, not that the stock is tanking. It's down about two percent when we came into the studio. But is that due to the miss on revenue, or is that just due to the fact that uh, this is a company in what is a very challenged industry at this moment in time? I'd say the latter. Um, for the year, they they twelve percent revenue gains. So the the full calendar fiscal year was was pretty strong for this company. Um, North America has, continues to dominate the where they derive their revenue from, well over fifty percent. Um, which that's something that they're trying to change. The Baker Hughes acquisition isn't necessarily going to help that because that company is right around fifty percent North America versus the rest of the world as well. But yeah, pre market they were up when they first announced what they had results uh, for the fourth quarter. I think people started reading into a little bit. Maybe they listened to the conference call, which I haven't had a chance to to read over yet. But they're just not very bullish on 2015, and that's understandable because billions of dollars have already been announced on the upstream side for capital expenditures that were previously going to be spent. Now, not so much. So, this company derives their revenue from these upstream companies that are that are building out their operations on the exploration and the drilling side of things, and that is clearly taking a hit for at least the next six months to a year. And so they're just trying to wait it out. But this company is nearly 100 years old. This isn't the first downturn in the oil market that they've seen. And right. That's not an assumption. That's a that's a scientific fact. Um, and they recovered. They, they are the number one hydraulic fracturer in the world, which is the future of energy production as conventional oil and natural gas uh, run out, which is a long ways away. But to go from a company that um, has continued to adapt to the number one provider of hydraulic fracturing services, I think that bodes well for when this does start to pick back up in the second half of the year, maybe, or 2016. I think that the combined entity is going to come out rip-roaring and ready to go. Yeah, uh, Refresh my memory. The Baker Hughes acquisition, I know it's not finalized, but for all intent, like, there's no one looking to hold that deal up, is there? I just a couple of the reports I read this morning. The way the language describing the Baker, Baker Hughes acquisition, uh, the language made it sound like no, no, no. This is not a done deal. I know it's not finalized, but it's just a matter of time before it is, right? Yeah, they say the second half of this year, you're likely to see some concessions, maybe some asset sales, um, but I don't think that this deal is going to be held up for any other purpose than that. And that's just going to give them some more cash to uh, either fortify the balance sheet with in this market downturn or to go out and maybe buy something else that's more fortuitous um, and and really come out of this downturn. Um, like I said, I think they're they're going to be in a very strong position. They they are still continuing to build out on the, frac- on the fracking side. Argentina supposedly has the largest or top three largest oil reserves on the ship. 
shale side, and they just built the country's first sand um, holding and and loading facility. So that'd probably be on the the 2017-2018 side when Argentina really gets kicking on the shale. But they're there, they're ready to do this, and we're talking long-term investments, and Halliburton is, is at the top of the list there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, actually. I mean, I really I, I like Halliburton a lot. I mean, I think when you look towards uh, energy in general, you want to look for scale. You want to look for the companies that really hold the market leading positions uh, because because you know there there's so much capital intensive uh, it's so they're so capital intensive I mean it's it's um you know Halliburton has those resources and they've proven time and time again that they they have a, a number of different ways that they can make money uh, whether it's through unconventional uh, unconventional uh, styles of, of extraction or just you know revisiting a lot of those wells that have have already been drilled out there and they're kind of you know tapping what whatever's left in there um, when you see energy uh, taking taking a dip like like it has here over the past few months, I mean, we can't really time when it's going to come back, but when it does come back, you know, Halliburton is going to be one of those companies that continues to do well, and I think these are the opportune times to to be looking at their stock. One thing Schlumberger said in their earnings uh, last week was that now you're seeing companies really wanting to pay while they're not going to be going out and exploring more and drilling more what they are currently doing they want to have the most efficient equipment available and Halliburton and Schlumberger are the two companies that are going to give you the most efficient equipment available so Schlumberger actually thinks that that helped their fourth quarter as companies maybe it kind of skewed some of the the cheaper players in the in the oil services field and started using Schlumberger, started using Halliburton because they want the equipment that's going to get the job done right because they don't want expensive mistakes. Schlumberger also announced at the end of the week they are cutting 9,000 jobs. Yeah. That's about 7% of their workforce. Mm-hmm. Now, they're the biggest player in the world. But when you see something like that, I mean, we're going to see more yeah. companies doing this, right? You will. You saw Halliburton already announce 1,000 internationally um, a few weeks back, and they did hint recently that there's probably going to be some domestic layoffs, not nearly to the aggregate level of Schlumberger, just because it's not the same size, but you could see the same maybe percentage of total workforce being laid off. It's an unfortunate circumstance, but um, so you're probably going to see some one-time charges for restructuring uh, over the next few quarters if they do decide to, to make uh, some layoffs of that of that scale. Fresh off a couple of victories in the television category at the Golden Globe Awards, Amazon is planning to expand into movies. There are reports now that Amazon plans to produce a dozen feature-length films starting this year. And according to these reports, Jason, the plan is twofold. One, that these movies would be released in theaters and then as early as one month later, one to two months later, they would be available for streaming online on Amazon Prime. Typically, what you see in the movie industry is there's a, a lag of about of at least three months. So I have to believe there are some theater owners who probably aren't going to be thrilled about this. But in terms of Amazon's business, first, were you surprised by this? Uh, surprised by their foray into f- it, feature films? Into feature films. Um, no. I mean, I think 
you know, ha- having seen some of the the Amazon original content, I think that Transparent was certainly uh, a series that was very well made. I think deserved the the, the awards that it's won, and I'm sure it'll win more. Um, and and I think we'll continue to see you know Amazon build out its original content on the TV side of things. It just gives it gives those creators a lot of freedom because they're not beholden to those sort of CBS, NBC network television types of standards where they have to be careful exactly what they're putting out there and they have to you know cater towards advertising to to a degree and. and Netflix is another example of one that's obviously been able to uh, to do a good job, and they're really all following sort of that HBO lead, which is you know HBO has done just such a wonderful job of. I think Mac put it really well the other day. He said basically they've earned our trust. Like I pretty much feel like anything that HBO comes up up with at this point is going to be good, or I'm at least going to give it a shot because they've earned our trust. And I think that Netflix and, and Amazon now to a degree are doing that as well. So you know jumping into feature films I think makes sense. Uh, because you know they're they're basically looking at sort of this old way of doing things with Hollywood. It seems like it's very much uh, a who you know and not what you know. Uh, and I think that what that results in is a lot of just unbelievably mediocre content today at the box office. And I, and I think that the ticket sales tell that. Um, I mean, ticket sales, box office ticket sales are just not. Uh, as as good as they once were, that's due to a couple of things. I mean, number one, we're getting our content different ways, or more ways to get it now than ever before. That certainly plays into it. Uh, but number two, I think that you're just there's just not as much compelling content out there today. And so I think Amazon sees an opportunity on two fronts. There is to you know serves an attractive uh, place for content producers to come get that content out, uh, and, and then two. You know, it's 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 a problem of distribution and streaming is is the way that a lot of this stuff is getting out there now, and and they see this platform that, according to to all estimates, I mean, the Prime membership is 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 now just exploding. It apparently had another great holiday season, so they're uh, you know added added somewhere in the neighborhood of ten million new Prime members, and and really to to you know add value to that platform to keep people there. Uh, you know, offering up something like this and becoming a little bit more than just an e-commerce play, I think, is a is a, a you know a natural progression. Well, and Taylor, you look at the budget for these films that Amazon is offering. We're talking five to twenty-five million dollars. That's a fraction of what you know. Clearly, they're not going after the Transformers and the Avengers sure. and the huge summer tentpole movies. Uh, but it, it does seem like the sort of thing that you know, if they can be selective, these films can be profitable in and of themselves. At the theater, and then to Jason's point about Prime, anything on top of that is gravy. Yeah, well, they're not solely reliant on film revenue, so they can, you know, they can produce these lower budget films. And if they do turn out well, then they they probably learned a lot from this experience, and maybe they step up to a bigger budget and another bigger budget if they decide to go that route. But I, I definitely think that this and even the Sony hack with the interview kind of put theaters on notice because. Um, I don't know any of the numbers from the interview, but I'm assuming it did pretty well for Sony, despite what they thought maybe was going to be a huge flop that they weren't ever going to be able to even release. But they charged consumers directly for online downloading of that. And it only went to like, I don't know how many theaters, but it was a very select amount of theaters that showed it across the country. And this wasn't going to be one of those movies that was only shown in a handful of theaters. This was probably going to be shown in every single theater across the country, but it wasn't, yet people still were able to see it. So, yeah, I think theater owners and those publicly traded companies are definitely um, kind of scratching their heads, wondering what the future holds for them. And on top of that, you see the the demographics of teenagers, they're just not going to the movie theaters like 
my age group did and age groups before me at that age where you want to get away from your family, go out there on a Friday night and, and go watch a movie um, because that's one of the things that you can do when you're 16 to 18, 21 years old. Um, and that's on the wane. So I worry for those companies um, as an investor, which I am not in any of them, but I am worried about the future unless they can figure something out and offer different things, maybe turn it into a gaming theater or something like that. But they need to figure something out. DreamWorks Animation, uh, also not immune to the pain, uh, reports that DreamWorks has started to cut some jobs, anywhere from 150 to 400 jobs, which obviously we're, we're not in the thousands in the way that uh, a Schlumberger is. But if DreamWorks cuts 400 jobs, that's nearly 20% of their workforce. That's a massive cut. And the fact that the stock is still dropping on news of these cuts, Jason tells me that there aren't a lot of investors out there looking at this as um, as a company that can cut its way to growth. No, and I think that uh, you know we we've, we've been very critical of DreamWorks for I think a while here now. Um, you know, I, th- I think DreamWorks for for everything that it has done well. You know, in in you know some movies, I think Shrek is the one that comes to mind as one that they've really been able to capitalize on. They've they've just a a litany of other movies that have just not met expectations. They haven't done poorly. Uh, some have, but I mean, but generally speaking, they just they always seem to be playing second fiddle to to Disney, and and you know that's just you're running into a buzzsaw there. It's kind of like Phil Mickelson versus Tiger Woods, right? I mean, it's not like he's I'm not calling DreamWorks <laughs> Mickelson by any means, but they they're always playing second fiddle to Disney, and, and I don't think that's ever going to change. And I mean, I I do give. You know, DreamWorks management at least credit for trying to go out and, and figure out different ways to sort of earn their money. And the, the deal they signed with Netflix, for example, I think was a smart one in serving as a content provider. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see more of those kinds of deals in, in the future because they got to figure out a way to try to not be so lumpy. Because if they're only going to produce two movies a year, uh, well, you better hope that those two movies work <laughs> they better out be well. hits. Because That's if they're right. not, I think you're going to see the stock basically do what it continues to do. Um, so I mean, I mean, you know, again, we'll we'll see how they they figure out a way to to sort of get through this. But you know, I mean, when we look at the the way this this whole world is changing, I mean, it was interesting just a few months back, um, or maybe a little bit more than a few months back, but when Netflix made the deal to produce the sequel to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, and I think initially their thought was, well, we'll have it in the movie theaters, and then maybe a month later it'll be on Netflix, or maybe it'll be on Netflix from the very beginning. And and, and you know, some some theater owners, I think the majority of theater theater owners were not on board with that. They thought that wasn't the right way to go about it. They wanted the priority. Uh, they wanted the exclusivity. Um, now this Amazon thing, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, these theater owners change their tune because I think ultimately they have to. I mean, the 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 numbers don't lie. I mean, you know, we just just harped on the fact that people aren't going to the movies like they once were. So uh, if these guys are interested in making money, and I have to believe that they are, uh, they're going to, I think, change their tune at some point here in the near future. By the way, I'm I'm reminded of one of my favorite websites for crunching numbers uh, in the movie industry, and that's Box Office Mojo. Yeah, because the great thing about that site is. Uh, to your point about, uh, you know, j- just to clarify, in case there's anyone misunderstanding, when Jason's talking about ticket sales going down, he's not talking about revenue. No. Box office revenue continues to tick up slightly year over year because ticket prices increase mm-hmm. year over year. But in terms of actual tickets sold, that's what he's referring to. But um, Box Office Mojo is a great site for anyone looking at crunch numbers on individual studios, etc. Radio at fool.com is our email address. 
question from Harold Gladney, who writes, If possible, can you please explain why a stock that has never paid a dividend and proudly proclaims they never will pay a dividend is worth anything? An extreme example of obvious success is Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. I know Buffett hates stock splits, and for the most part, I agree and understand that. But if the only way you can ever benefit cash-wise from something is to sell to the next guy who is buying it to hold solely in anticipation of the fact that he will someday also sell it to the next guy who will hold it and sell it to the next guy, etc., etc., it's a, it's a really interesting way I think of of looking at stocks because I think that uh, for all the talk that that uh, we do in this room about you know we're interested in businesses we want to be part owners of great businesses there are a lot of investors who yes they're looking for the great business but they're also looking for a cash stream of some sort and in some cases. You know, I guess at one end of the spectrum, Taylor, you can be an investor who says, "No, I'm I'm looking for income." So any the first screen I'm running for any stock is paying a dividend. Mm-hmm. Um, in your own investing life, how much does a company paying a dividend, whether it's quarterly or on an annual basis, how much does that factor into your decision to buy shares? Uh, right now, not too much. I mean, I've got a pretty decent mix of dividend payers versus non-dividend payers, and I totally understand. You know, later in life, you do want the that income stream, and so I'll probably change my tune as the years progress. But um, I want to point out a book, The Outsiders, is a great read, especially if you are interested in companies paying or not paying a dividend, because this is about eight CEOs, Warren Buffett being one of them, that delivered multiples of re- outperformance versus their peer group and their benchmark S and P five hundred. And three out of the eight never paid a dividend. The other five paid minimal to only a special dividend here or there. So it's not completely necessary to, you know, achieve your financial goals. But if you want that quarterly or monthly or annual cash deposited into your account, maybe they're not the companies that you're looking for. Personally, the dividend. Um, I look at the safety of the dividend more than I look at what they're actually if they actually have one or not um, when I'm going to invest in a company. And with the dividend comes, you know. A, additional stress on financial planning for the company because they have to if you cut your dividend your share price is probably going to take a hit right, right along with it you've seen that time and time again what do you mean by safety of the dividend just is that a reflection of just longevity the, how many years have they kept this up well that or you can look at you know the, the payout ratio how much wiggle room do they have it, it, you, all these energy companies some of the bigger dividend payers are really getting hurt because investors are worried that that cash stream that they've become accustomed to is probably going to disappear at least somewhat so you have to look at the payout ratio or you know just excess cash that they have or growing the dividend on an annual basis is is nice to see um, but it doesn't really come into to my screening um, on just the yield. I don't look for a specific three, four, or five percent yield if I'm investing in a company. Jason, how much does it factor into your decision to click the buy button on a stock? So, so right now, I would say not so much, and and I'll I'll state that I am more in the stage as an investor where I'm looking to grow my wealth as opposed to. Protecting it now, I do like dividends. Don't get me wrong; I think they're great. Um, but I mean, I think it's an interesting point that's noted here from the from the email because you know, if if you're looking at a big company, uh, you know, look at a lot of these big sort of Dow component companies. 
um, the bigger they are, then the, you know the tougher it is for them to grow. You're not counting on growth as much as you're counting on just sort of like maintenance, right? They're just going to kind of keep on doing what they're doing, with the exception of something like Berkshire Hathaway. And I think the reason you know the reason why Berkshire Hathaway has never paid a dividend is because Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger feel that they can allocate that money better. They can earn a better return, uh, which in turn will will continue I'll to grow the stock that. price over time. <laughs> and so far, that's proven out to work work okay. Um, but you know, I mean, if you're looking for a dividend, you're going to be, you know, generally speaking, looking at these larger companies that have, uh, you know, the financial wherewithal to be able to maintain that dividend and grow it over time. And so something like Walt Disney, uh, 3M, companies like that. Uh, the smaller companies, small caps to mid caps, probably won't tend to have a dividend because they're. Earlier in their growth cycle, and when they're earlier in that growth cycle, they want to plow that money back into the business in order to grow. Now, while you as an investor may not realize the immediate cash payout from a dividend, what you are recognizing, assuming the company is firing on all cylinders, uh, is you know the growth over time in that stock price because the stock price is something that is indicative of you know a company's size and its cash flow generation, its ability to generate cash. Um, so it. it you know, I, I think it just depends on whether you're looking for that consistent sort of immediate cash payout versus something like a a stock that you know will continue to grow over time. Now, you know, will there be someone to buy that stock when you want to sell it four, five, ten years down the road? Chances are pretty good. I mean, that's the one good thing about the market is it's 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 extremely liquid. It's extremely forward looking, and I think that's the key. There is the market is always looking forward. So when you maybe feel like you have a stock that you want to sell because you're you're feeling like it's done what you wanted it to do or you need the cash. Well, the chances are that there will be someone out there to buy that stock because the market is a forward-looking mechanism and it's very liquid. Um, and so that's kind of just how I look at that. We'll wrap up there. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, no buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.